Welcome to Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 5, Episode 10, presented by Marketile. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. Steve, I'm catching you practically as you're about to board a jet airliner south. (laughs) Tell the people more about where you're going and what you're up to. So we're recording this on Thursday, and this evening I am headed down to Buenos Aires, Argentina, which is my first time there. It's That part is vacation, but I'm sure I'll check out a little bit of a remarkable retail while I'm there, in addition to probably yeah. stuffing myself with, with steak. <laughs> yeah. And then I am jetting up to Sao Paulo to mm. do the opening keynote at the LATAM retail show. Yeah, that's the biggest retail conference in Latin America. And uh, first time for me, not my first time in Brazil, but my first time yeah, in yeah. Sao Paulo. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, fantastic. I look forward to hearing uh, all about it. And speaking of travel, uh, a reminder to everybody to, uh, if they're going to be in Vegas at Grocery Shop, join us in uh, high above the desert sands. And there's a, an offer code in the show notes. Get yourself a nice discount. In this episode, part two of our interview with author, philosopher, screenwriter, Stephen Pressfield. And then we cover... Some of his more recent work, Do the Work, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, and his latest, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. And we talk about a a, a really interesting, in our last episode, we talked a lot about this idea of resistance. Uh, In this episode, we talk a lot about his idea of turning pro, and and that had a big influence on you. Talk about that for a few seconds. I was was criticized by someone whose opinion I value very much, that I was not acting as a professional in some of the work I was doing. And I was very offended by that. And uh, as you'll hear, when Mm. Steve talks about turning pro, he means it in a very specific way and I think a really interesting way. So uh, Mm. even if you think about yourself as as being quite professional, you'll get a, a different and I think important take on that in our conversation. So great book, great interview. I think everybody will be surprised. We've gotten really good feedback from folks mm-hmm. on part one mm-hmm. from quite a few people that weren't familiar with Stephen Pressfield's work. So that's always fun mm-hmm. to do. Let's uh, let's let's kick off in the news. Now, you mentioned you're going to be doing some uh, remarkable retail store tours uh, when you head south. You you also recently did some uh, a little more locally, and uh, you wanted to chat about what you saw and and uh, the situation that you that met you. So uh, tell me a little bit about your recent store tours. Yeah, just really briefly, uh, we've touched on this issue of there being so much inventory in the system, particularly apparel related. And so I decided to go out into the the wilds of Dallas, Texas to <laughs> see what was going on at a few stores. And I thought there were a couple of interesting things. The most interesting to me was what was going on at Nordstrom. Nordstrom had, uh, as folks may know or recall, because we talked about it on an episode or two ago, they had actually a pretty good quarter. Their sales were up, but they were also worried about a slowdown in spending. And and they said that they were going to be more aggressive about markdowns and and just kind of getting their inventory situation in shape. And when I went to the North Park Mall store here in Dallas, I noticed like pretty much the entire women's department was 40% off. Like I was shocked. And this is for people that understand more of the high end part of retail. This is generally like September is the heart of full price selling. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. the, the, the percentages and the degree to which large sections of apparel were 40% off was, was interesting to me. So they're definitely being aggressive, particularly as a largely non-promotional retailer. But the other side was the men's department, like nothing on sale at all. So that was disappointing since I wear quite a bit more men's clothing than women's clothing. So, um, 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just, that was interesting to me. And then um, mm. Mm. I, I, at Target, I went to a couple of Target stores and, you know, there's somebody that has been, you know, had a lot of markdown uh, already, exposure already. And I've talked about that being an issue. Uh, the store looked, you know, kind of full to the brim, but I wouldn't say that the discounting was all that extensive, mm. Uh, mm-hmm. which was interesting to me. So I know a couple companies have talked about kind of this putting it away, packing, I forget the term that they use where they you know, pack it up and put it away for the mm-hmm. next season. So maybe mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of that at Target or maybe there's something about those couple of stores. But uh, mm-hmm. definitely chock, chock full of inventory, but not, not a lot of markdowns. And then um, just two other quick ones. Macy's uh, definitely looked a little bit more aggressive than I would expect. But, you know, Macy's, it seems like, you know, half the store is on sale all the time anyway. I was going uh, to say, what's your expectations, by the way? Yeah. So it was hard to calibrate mm. really how different it, it would be. Um, but again, you know, it's the time of year where, where you wouldn't expect to see quite as aggressive markdown activity. And then down the mall at Dillard's. Now, Dillard's is a regional chain, so a lot of folks mm-hmm. may not be as aware of them. But pretty similar to Macy's, probably a little bit more upscale, similar size store, a lot of similar brands hardly anything on sale there. It's it's just really interesting to me how some companies that are, you know, pretty sophisticated at this and in some cases, you know, same kind of customer seem to be in, in very different places. So uh, I expect Dillard's will, uh, they had a pretty good quarter mm-hmm. last quarter and uh, they might, they might actually be the cream of the crop or the cream of the crap here, depending upon how things turn out. <laughs> Um, speaking of Target, uh, interesting news with Brian Cornell staying. Now, that's not a typical announcement that garners much attention. Uh, you know, someone's staying. Usually you hear a lot about leaving, and there's some of that going on at Lowe's. But uh, what, what, what do you make of the Target? You know, I think it's something to do with mandatory retirement age. I mean, I, yeah, they changed. They basically, I mean, the way the story was reported was that Target essentially changed their mandatory retirement age. So mm. that Brian didn't have to retire. So well. this will allow him to stay, I guess, about three years as opposed mm. to another year or so. Mm. So, so uh, I was interested I, to hear they had a mandatory retirement age. That, yeah, I, that, that, I, right. I that wasn't. Was a, uh, I was not aware of that. Yeah. On the other side, uh, news today: our friend and she's been on the podcast, Lauren Thomas, leaving CNBC. I mean, I hope. Uh, She's, I hope in her future path she stays in retail because I really enjoyed her retail reporting. Yeah, this was a surprise to me. Lauren just got married. Congratulations, congratulations Lauren congratulations. Uh, and Will, if uh, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, Lauren, uh, like you said, we've had her on the podcast. I've followed her work for the last, I guess it's about five or six years that she's been at CNBC. And I feel like she kind of came out of nowhere as like a mm-hmm. I don't know, 23 or 24-year-old and very quickly was was one of the top reporters and one of the most influential voices in retail. So yeah, I hope she stays in retail, but we certainly wish her well, whatever she ends up, uh, ends up doing. But yeah, that was, I woke up this morning. I was like, wait, what? Last couple of things. Amazon's making some moves around their distribution center. Sounds like they're closing facilities, slowing their role. We've talked about this before. Is there anything new do you wanted to comment on this? Cause we, we did see this coming. Some of it was like, well, let's, let's not open ones we've planned, but uh, do you make of anything? Should we be paying attention to this well it seems like they're taking it to kind of a new level uh yeah it was surprising i think to to many of us how wrong amazon and shopify and a few others got about their investments in the growth of e-commerce so they have announced that they were shopping some 
facilities and slowing things down. What's happened in the last week is they're closing two additional facilities and putting, I think it's 45 or something, 42, I don't know, can't remember the exact number, additional mm-hmm. facilities basically on hold. So that's pretty significant. And they also appear to be stepping up uh, essentially contract services for fulfillment and distribution for for other companies. So kind of a twist mm. to their fulfilled by Amazon third-party fulfillment. So definitely a picture that they are way, way overspaced, overdeployed in their distribution facilities and apparently not expecting the demand to be significant enough to, to make up mm. for that anytime soon. So uh, definitely, definitely, I think, a, a sense that Andy Jassy, I mean, I don't want to read too much into this, but you know, mm-hmm. Bezos was pretty famous for, for, for moonshots, you know, literally and figuratively, sure. yeah. uh, that Jesse is a much more kind of operating focused, disciplined mm-hmm. ROI kind of, kind of guy. So, uh, and, and it's a different time in the evolution of the business, right? I mean, it's one thing to take it from, you know, zero to where it is today to, you know, it's just a different point in the business, I, I suppose as well is, is we've seen, uh, we've seen that now. I, I don't want to get into this in any kind of length because I think this is a topic that we're going to, we can come back to, but, um, Rob Garf, our friend Rob Garf and, and Salesforce and some other researchers coming out talking about consumers who are freaking out a little bit about inflation so they were going to shop early. I I suspect, and retailers I've talked to on this side of the border, are more thinking that there'd be a more normal pattern that people alternatively would say, I'm going to wait and see if there's a better deal around the corner, which is more normal behavior. Do you have a any sense off the top of your head of which way this is going to break? I guess it's something I'd love to talk about over the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's something to watch. Um, I mean, my sense sounds pretty similar to yours is generally the, the narrative, if you're paying any attention to what's going on in, re- in retail, is there's too much inventory. So mm-hmm. the markdowns are likely to be pretty extensive. I've just seen a lot of news stories about inventory, you know, much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of general business coverage of the inventory issues than I would expect. And I've had people that I know just ask me about it that mm. I would think, oh, you're not paying attention to this. So, but, you know, but I think inflation has been so pronounced and mm-hmm. has hit so many people so hard that you can kind of understand the fear of it, particularly if you're like, well, you know, I really want to make sure I, you know, if you've got, you know, particularly limited means and you really want to make sure you have a great, you know, great Christmas or, or whatever holiday you separate, you celebrate, mm-hmm. uh, to be fearful that you might not be able to afford it. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, the way this will actually mm-hmm. sort out, I think will be, will be pretty interesting. That'll be super interesting. Watch. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there. Let's get to, uh, our great interview with, uh, Stephen Pressfield. But before we do that, let's hear from our sponsor. MarketDial's easy-to-use testing platform emboldens great decisions, leading to reliable, scalable results. With MarketDial, you can be confident in the outcome of your in-store pilot initiatives before rolling them out across your fleet. In a challenging retail climate of supply chain disruption, labor shortages, and dynamic customer behavior, the need for reliable insights has never been greater. Validate your remarkable ideas with MarketDial's in-store testing solution. The proof is in the testing. Learn more at MarketDial.com. That's marketdial.com. All right. We, we are back with part two of a great conversation with author extraordinaire, novelist, screenwriter, and 
a sort of part-time self-help guru in some respects, Stephen Pressfield. Welcome back, Stephen. <laughs> uh, it's great to be back, Steve. Thank you. We also uh, we also decided that your official title is uh, Servant of the Muse or something like that on the on the last episode. But uh, so what we're going to try to do today? So last episode we spent a fair amount of time talking about. Uh, Steve's first nonfiction book, The War of Art, classic book, sold over a million copies, and this idea of resistance as a force that needs to be overcome to do our best work. Uh, we'll probably pick up on some of those ideas again, but I thought this time we'd talk more about some of your uh, later work, uh, including your latest book, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. Uh, but maybe we could talk first about this idea of, of turning pro. It's the title of one of your books, but this idea of being a professional. I mentioned on the last episode that I got a little bit offended by a mutual friend of ours accusing me of not being a professional, but it's, it's not about getting paid for your work. It's about some other kinds of, of disciplines and how you approach your work. Could you just talk for a minute or two about this idea of turning pro? Well, when we were talking earlier, Steve, about resistance with a capital R, meaning the the self-generated force of self-sabotage that works against us all the time, that will uh, distract us, make us yield to self-doubt, to fear, or on the other side, to perfectionism and arrogance, whatever it takes to stop us from doing our work. And so the logical question that comes out of that after you talk about that is, well, how do you overcome that? Here's what has worked for me. I find that if I beat myself up and say, uh, oh, you know, you're a, you're a chicken, you're, uh, you're uh, immature, you're whatever, and that's why you can't overcome resistance, that's no good because it's mm. a self-judgment thing and it only beats you down. Or if you say to yourself, oh, there's something wrong with me, you know, my upbringing or blah, 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 that another form of self-judgment. So what has kind of worked for me is the, the concept of the difference between an amateur and a professional. And I'll define that as we go along. So I would say what the malady is, what the, the problem that, at least for me, now I was getting defeated for seven years easily by resistance, trying to write and just running away from it, failing, et cetera, et cetera. Not, not failing in writing, but failing even to sit down and write, failing even to get to the, to the starting gate. And what worked for me was to say to myself, Steve, you have been thinking and acting like an amateur. You've been acting like a weekend warrior. You've been dabbling. You've been just on the surface of this thing. And the solution to that is to turn pro. And what I mean by that is not it's, it's only flipping a switch in your mind. It doesn't mean you have to get paid for anything like that. It just means that you start to think of yourself in whatever it is you're doing. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're in business, if you're a writer, you're an artist or whatever it is, and you're being defeated by your own tendency to self-sabotage is to just think of yourself as as a professional and what are the rule, what, what are the rules that a professional or how does a, prof a professional act? For instance, a couple of models for me would be Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or Tom Brady. I tend to think in athletic terms. And you say to yourself, what does a professional do that an amateur doesn't do? And mm -hmm. one of the things that a professional does is he shows up, he or she shows up every day. 
There's no Stephen King writes 365 days a year, Christmas, his birthday, Fourth of July, everything. The second thing a professional does is he or she stays on the job all day, or at least as long as as they can, you know, uh, in an effective way. They don't show up for 10 minutes and then flake out. They don't show up for two hours and then flake out. Another thing a professional does is a professional plays hurt. If you think about an athlete like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, they don't, you know, if they've tweaked a hamstring or something like that, they find some way to play. And the same thing for us. When, when we think like an amateur, if we run into any kind of adversity, we'll fold. You know, it's just too hard today. I've got too much stuff going on with my family. I've got this and that distractions. I've got other things I must take care of. The, an amateur will fold when faced with that sort of thing. But a professional will say, okay, I've got to deal with this crap, but I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to get my time in today, no matter what it is. So it's a, it's a more of a hardcore attitude, but it takes the self-judgment out of the, out of the thing. So I just try to think of myself as a professional and that makes all the difference in the world. So I wonder, and maybe this is an unfair question because I know you don't spend your time in corporate worlds uh, very much, but one of the things that uh, uh, I've come to believe with innovation as it's practiced at a lot of corporations is that people think of innovation or, you know, kind of creativity within the business world is almost like a bolt of lightning strikes them. You know, it's an idea Mm. and just having a good idea is is successful. But what I've come to believe is, you know, ideas are important, but, but, but doing the work, all the steps that it takes to get a raw idea to, to commercial success, yeah, it's quite an involved process. And my observation, and Michael, you know, share your thoughts here as well, is that mm-hmm. lots of companies don't approach it a- as professionals. That that innovating consistently is a real job, and you're and you're no more likely to run a marathon without training than you are to come up with the next new great product just because you know you have a. a, a bolt of inspiration hits you over the weekend and suddenly you're an innovative company. Is there any of that, that kind of parallel thinking makes, makes sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of, of uh, let me use the, the writing metaphor rather than the corporate metaphor for me. It's one thing to write a book. It's an entire other thing to publish it, to promote it, and to market it. And that's kind of the, the phase that you were just talking about, Steve, you know, that once you have this bolt of lightning, that's just the beginning, right? And again, I think what the trap a lot of us fall into is we think like amateurs and we think, well, it's going to be hard. I really don't know the people. I, who do I reach out to? How do I do that? That kind of thing, right? I don't, I've got a steep learning curve. That's amateur thinking. If you allow that to stop you from doing what has to be done, the professional knows that he or she has just got to do it. They might not like it. Resistance works just as hard once you've had the great idea against you as it did, you know, to get the idea in the first place. But a professional just sort of buckles down and knows that this is the kind of crap that has to be done. You might not enjoy it, but you have to do it. And, uh, So again, if you can flip that switch in your mind, the great thing about turning pro as an idea is it's free. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to take a course. You don't have to get a diploma. Nobody has to validate you or ratify you. All you have to do is flip that switch in your mind. Now, that ain't easy. Yeah. We were talking in the first half of this yeah. thing about does it take a crisis to make you change? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times it does take a crisis for somebody to to turn pro, to really think, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to stop my amateur ways and adapt a whole new attitude. Is there some training or some exercise or some idea that can help you in that transition that gets you there as opposed to this, you know, snap of the switch or the idea that I'm just going to do it. Do you think about it in that way? I mean, you, you did everything from driving cabs to writing books. I mean, your, your transition was over time, but was there a moment where you knew, boy, if I, if I could do the following things that would help me get to pro faster? Well, I'll tell you a story that's, I think this is in the war of art. It might be in turning pro. This is a a story from Roseanne Cash, the singer, uh, in her book, Composed, which I highly recommend, Mm. uh, which is kind of a sort of an autobiographical thing. And she had a moment. This was her turning pro moment. She was already a success as Johnny Cash's daughter and in her own right. And she had had an album that had four number one songs off of it. One night she had a dream. And in the dream, she was sitting at a party And Linda Ronstadt was on this kind of bench with her. And in between the two of them was an older man that she somehow knew that his name was Art, capital A-R-T. And Art was in animated discussion with Linda Ronstadt, who had always been kind of an an idol for Roseanne Mm -hmm. and that she always wanted to be like that. And Roseanne kept trying to uh, break into the conversation, and Art just kept ignoring her. And finally, he just sort of turned to her, and with withering scorn, he said, we don't mess around with dilettantes. Mm -hmm. And she said that she woke up from that dream shaken to the core, and she felt like, I am a dilettante. I've always wanted to do albums where I'm the songwriter or I'm creating it, and I haven't done it. I've been covering other people's material for years. And so she said, there's a great passage, I wish I had it here to read, but she said, from that moment, she changed her life. She changed the way she sang. She said she began training, almost like an athlete, Mm -hmm. to uh, she uh, she began studying painting. She signed up with a with a great uh, couple of great um, singing teachers because she had never taken that seriously. She tried. She realized that she used to uh, when she would be dealing with new ideas, she would she would be always kind of superficial about them. And so she sort of understood that and began to force herself to go deeper into these ideas. And uh, she said that she had a bad habit of daydreaming. And she said she had to, that was a form of resistance for her, that she Mm. had to break out of that, you know, just make herself snap out of it and get to work. And so she just basically just kind of changed her life. So there was no kind of, she changed, in other words, the regimen of a day for her, you know, instead of just sort of hoping that a song would come that she could write. She would really take take the time and sit down and work with good people and so on and so forth. Hmm. So there was no like course that she took or a program hmm. that anybody put her on. It sort of had to be personal. And I think it does have to be personal for all of us because we each have our own demons and resistance shows itself in our lives in its own peculiar way its own idiosyncratic way. And we just sort of have to learn, have to find a kind of a way to do that. And a big part of it, I think, is habit and establishing kind of a, a, 
an everyday way, just as what a professional does, right? A professional shows up every day, you know, mm. and shows up at the same time, shows up at the same place and, you know, sits down and does their thing, whatever it is. So I think maybe there's some course or something somewhere. I don't know where it is. I think we, we each kind of have to evolve it our own self in, in, you know, based on what form our own resistance takes to stop us from following our dream. It, it's such an illustrative story because there you have a, a, by anyone's measure, a successful artist who's got four. What did you say? So you said, you know, four, four number best, one hits. Four number one, one hits. So does it ever? Does just help me define when does anxiety creep in that you're never good enough? Like this is the opposite end of the scale. Like uh, I, I guess in some ways, if you if you work at that, that's a very positive. Like even elite athletes say, I can always improve on something, right? Is it, a, is it, a, do you see it as a journey with a point of arrival or is it a journey? And I guess the, my roundabout way of asking is how do you not drive yourself nuts by just saying I'm never good enough and I keep, I need to keep improving. Is there a point where you, you need to be happy with your self and what you've done yet still have that pro idea that it can always be better? Well, like I, I think in Roseanne's case, she really felt like uh, she really wasn't living her dream. Mm. Her dream was to be a songwriter as well as a performer, and she wasn't doing that. So it wasn't a case that she had taken it to level 99% and was only wrestling with the last 1%. In her mind, she was probably at like 30%. Mm. So she felt like, I've, I've, I'm not doing what, I, what my dream is. I'm not doing it. So, But uh, I do think that the the dragon must be slain anew every morning, and I think it it is a journey. It's a um, it's a hero's journey, and uh, but I do, I don't think we have to worry about uh, oh I'm driving myself crazy because I'm you know, at ninety nine percent and I'm and I I'm trying to push myself to ninety nine point nine. I mean most of us are at like fifty or forty or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I do think that. This is what life is all about, if you ask me. It's this journey. It's this process. You know, it's, it's, uh, you climb a mountain and there's another mountain after that, you know, and there's always another mountain after that. And I, I think that's, that's what life is about. Uh, I know just, I know sometimes people will ask me, since I've been doing this for like 50 years writing, does it get any easier? Does resistance, you know, go away? And the answer is absolutely not. It even gets a little bit worse the more you've been in because it's, like I say, it's an intelligent force, and it's very nuanced and very, uh, very subtle. It's it's like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You know, it's very seductive, and and it'll fool you. So, um, but that is the process that the dragon has to be slain anew every morning. That's just to me. That's just reality. I mean, even if you think of the animal kingdom, you know, uh, if uh, up here I live out in the country, and there are a lot of coyotes and there are a lot of hawks. And the hawks are sailing around all day and the coyotes are all night. They're out hunting. You know, they it never gets easier for them. They've <laughs> got to make a kill every day. They got to make another kill. And yeah. um, so why should, be, should it be any different for us? Well, and I, I think they're in a weird way, like there's freedom in accepting the reality, right? Like you don't have to yeah. fight, fight that just like you don't want to fight gravity. Like gravity's there. Doesn't care. You know, as I say in my book, you know, sort of cheekily, like, you know, gravity doesn't care whether you like it or not, right? Gravity's there. It is what it is. And, and it's our job to, to deal with that situation. So maybe this is a good chance to, to segue to the book that you put out this, uh, earlier in the summer, 
Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, which is one of my favorite titles of all time, by the way. Uh, even better, I do like maybe. Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, though. Yeah, Nobody I, Wants to Read Your I Shit do, is do like also great. So, so you're like this ninja level uh, <laughs> titler. Is titler a word? I don't know. But in any event, uh, tell us what, what was the inspiration for Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be? How does it build on uh, what you've written about in the past? And, and what are some of the key messages you're hoping to instill in, in that work? You know, uh, put your ass where your heart wants to be is a phrase that I've kind of had in the back of my head for like 10 years or something like that. And it's really just another way of saying turn pro. And what I mean by that is that uh, what I define the word ass as in this thing in terms of putting your ass where your heart wants to be is commitment. You know, when you put your ass on the line, you're committed, right? You take a step where you can fail. You put yourself in the, in the, in the area of risk. But it's like that, that old saying that your dreams lie on the other side of fear, right? The fulfillment of your dreams lies on the opposite side of fear. So I find putting your ass where your heart wants to be, thinking of it in those terms is, an, is a way of, of defeating resistance. Now, the way the first level interpretation of that is if someone were to say to me, how do I want to write? How do I write? I would say, put your ass in front of a keyboard. Put your physical body in front of the keyboard and don't let yourself get up for four hours. And there's a magic in putting your physical body. If you want to be a dancer, put your physical body in the studio. If you want to be a painter, put your physical body in front of an easel. And there's a, there is definitely a magic to doing that. But it's a simple, it's a way, again, kind of like the idea of turning pro, of getting past any ideas of self-judgment. In other words, you want to solve that problem, sit down and do it, you know, put your put your physical body there and get to work. It's actually like the book that I did with Seth, our mutual friend, Seth, that the title of it is do the work. Same sort of thing. How do you get the work done? Do it. (laughs) You know, it sounds crazy, but it's true. It's like it's like uh, in AA, the uh, what's how do you stop drinking? Stop drinking. Can I elaborate on this a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, please. please. There's a there is a uh, discipline in uh, in in Jewish mysticism in Kabbalistic thinking, and it's called Musar, M U S S A R, and the it's in the the first two steps are one identify the sin, and two stop doing it, and. What's great about that to me is like it's the opposite of psychotherapy. We, we sort of have fallen into this, uh, not that I'm knocking psychotherapy, but psychotherapy is kind of like uh, you have a problem, so you sit down and you work with a the therapist and you try to find out, well, where did this come from? Was this in childhood? You know, my mother did this, my father, blah, blah. And the theory is that if you can finally get to the bottom of, 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 of that, of the mechanism, whatever it is, that that will cure you. The other way is to just go straight to this, identify the sin and stop doing it. And so put your ass where your heart wants to be is, is exactly that. It says, do you want to climb Mount Everest? Get a ticket to India, get the, stu- <laughs> the stuff you need and do it, you know, or if you want to start you know, smaller, start on the process of climbing a small mountain and a little bigger mountain and learn and become a pro and do it. So that's what put your ass where your heart wants to be. That's what it means. It's a lot deeper than that, as you know, if you've read it. But um, 
anyway, that's that's my answer to that question. <laughs> Could we just maybe briefly touch on uh, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, which I read when it first came out, but I've been listening, which actually just got done listening to it on, on uh, Audible, and I find it very inspiring for some of the writing that I'm starting. But there's also an aspect to it, and, and tell me if I'm reading this correctly, is is kind of this humility that you need to have. Uh, and the way I think about it, in the context of what we talk about, uh, you know, what I've written about in Remarkable Retail, we talk about on the podcast, is this idea that, like, nobody's getting, I don't believe, anybody's getting up in the morning looking for a, a new sweater, fundamentally. Like, there's uh-huh. lots of stuff in the <laughs> world that, you know, we as, uh, like, my, my ex-wife used to, this is really a tangent here, but my ex-wife used to work <laughs> in craft foods in brand management, and you could probably relate to this because I know you talk a lot about, in, in that book, about your your history in the advertising <laughs> business. It's like, nobody really cares about these products. Like, if we work there, we care a lot about it, but, like, just getting somebody's attention about some of the stuff we're trying to sell is is really not so hard. You've really got to do something truly breakthrough or remarkable, as I like to talk about it, just to even get people's attention, much less engage with you. And I think there's a certain humility and just reality that comes from understanding that. But anyway, I, I'm projecting some of my stuff onto your work. But what, what are some of the core ideas of nobody wants to read your shit beyond just a, the great advice you have for for writers and creators in terms of the practice of of doing the work? Well, I, I think you pretty much explained it really good, Steve. <laughs> but uh, one of the things, uh, like uh, that, the first thing you learn in advertising, if you're a writer or an art director in advertising, is that nobody wants to read what you're putting out. Right. Your ad for Preparation H, you know, your commercial for uh, Budweiser, nobody gives a shit. They just want to hit the remote and and get past it. Right. And nobody wants to go see your one act play and nobody wants to, uh, you know, uh, go to see your gallery opening, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's not that they're bad people. They're just busy. Right. We're all busy. Right. So what comes out of that from the point of view of the creator, like you said, is humility is you have to say to yourself, if Again, this is a form of resistance, right? That if I want somebody to read my ad for Preparation H, I better make that ad so good, so interesting, so unexpected, right? So graphic that they can't not read it. And and that gives you a certain uh, humility about what your task is. And the other thing is that you realize that any form of commerce or art is a transaction, You know, what we're hoping to get from the customer is their attention and their money, right? And in return for that, we have to give them something. You know, a lot of times, and that's something better be great. So we've got to beat our brains out to get there. That's why it's nobody wants to read your shit is just a, is the, the basic uh, ground level uh, assumption that you start from in any kind of creative enterprise. Well, you're, you're, what a great discussion. Um, the next question is kind of a strange one. You've d- done so much, written so much. What's next? Uh, you know, I want to get into the multiple ways that people can keep up with what you do, whether it's, uh, Steve referenced earlier, you know, from blogs to podcasts. But uh, what's next when you, when you sit down and think and look ahead? What are you, uh, what are you working on now? Can you give us uh, some teasers on that? 
Um, I'm actually, uh, I've got like a bunch of things going on, but one of them mm-hmm. is uh, in my books like The War of Art and Turning Pro and things like that, I've kind of alluded in passing to certain phases in my, you know, time in the wilderness, you know, mm-hmm. driving trucks and things like that. And uh, But I've never really talked about that. So I've got a book coming out that's really sort of an autobiographical thing where I really kind of mm-hmm. talk about the things that I never talked about before so that uh, if anybody ever wanted to say, well, what? How exactly did you go get through twenty-seven years of failure? Mm. This is this is what that book is about. So it's kind of an it's a memoir. No, oh, fantastic! And and where can people go? And we'll put some links in the show notes. But where can people go to? And obviously, they can find your work on uh, all the major book uh, retailers uh, in person or or online. But is there a place you can point us to uh, to keep up with uh, your latest thinking and? Um, I have a website that's just my name, stephenpressfield.com. And I'm on Instagram. You know, I'm, that, I'm always doing videos and stuff like that on Instagram. Huh. You follow me there. And uh, those get, you know, passed on to Twitter and Facebook and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every Wednesday on my on stephenpressfield.com, I do a thing called Writing Wednesdays, which is sort of like a each blog is like another chapter in the War of Art that I didn't write in the War of Art. So it's about writing, it's about resistance, it's about entrepreneurship, that kind of thing, every, every Wednesday on, uh, on my blog. That's yeah, and it, it's, it's, it's really terrific. I would encourage people, I mean, obviously I'm a huge fan, but I, I think you would be, many people would be surprised. Uh, I mean, certainly if you are a writer or, you know, sort of a traditional artist, you'll get a tremendous amount out of Stephen's work. But the, the thing that has really struck me is how universal his nonfiction work is. We didn't talk about the fiction side of things, which is also terrific. And uh, you've had amazing success there. So please go check out what, what he's up to. I think you'll be incredibly inspired. You'll learn a lot. And the last thing I'm going to say is the, your ability to boil things down in a concise way is, is really impressive. Uh, You know, these are not, as Michael alluded to, I guess in our part one of this, you know, these, these are not 800 page books that you got to slog through or, or feel like, oh, this could have been an email. I mean, it's just, you know, the right, the right length to give you some depth, but not, uh, not just sort of bludgeon you with a lot of extraneous information. So that's, that's something I'm trying to learn. My comments here being long winded, notwithstanding, I, mean, <laughs> I, could, I could stand to be more brief as is probably obvious to anybody who's ever heard me talk or met me. So anyway, but I appreciate that very, very much about your work. Well, thank, thanks, thanks so much. Of, we we both can learn from our mutual friend, Seth Godin, who is <laughs> the, the master of delivering, you know, massive amounts of stuff in in very few words. Absolutely. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Stephen Pressfield has been our guest on these past two episodes. Stephen, a real treat to to get to read your material and and to hear your words and uh, hear your voice. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Steve. And, uh, you know, uh, anytime you want to do this again, I'm happy to do it. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, like our discussion with Seth Godin on what retailers can actually do to fight climate change. New episodes of Season 5, presented by Marketal, will show up each and every week. And be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one, plus the host of the popular YouTube cooking show, Last Request Barbecue. 
You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn or meleblanc.co. Safe travels, everyone.